The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's Culture Club time and I'm delighted that we're joined today by the author of what I have said many times was definitely the best book of 2022 and it wasn't just me who said it. It was the Irish Novel of the Year at the Unpost Book Awards. It's been long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction 2023 and shortlisted for Debut Fiction Book of the Year at the British Book Awards. Louise Kennedy, welcome back to The Last Word. Thank you very much for having me back. It was just released when I spoke to you last year. It's now become an enormous success. What's it like to be the author of such an acclaimed book, Trespasses? Um, I mean, it's very nice and um, I get to go to lots of nice places these days and talk about the book and uh, that's all really great. Um, in my normal life at home, it probably hasn't made a hell of a lot of difference. Um, like my house should be cleaner and um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I spend a lot of time queuing and leading like everybody else and stuff. So it's all very nice. Do you like talking about the book once it's been written? Um, I do like to, I mean, I I, I, I kind of at the start maybe just accepted that it was part of the job. Um, maybe it's become a lot easier to talk about it because I think maybe... Um, you know, when a book comes out in the beginning, you don't really know what you've done until maybe readers read it and start to respond to it. And you can see maybe that there are things there that sometimes you intended them, sometimes you didn't intend them. I'd say in most cases, actually, you don't intend them. Uh, um, But um, I think I especially like um, reading in the North because I was so terrified um, before publication that people would come at me um, from the north because I lived there until I was 12 um, and left at the end of the 70s that maybe they would think that I, you know, didn't have a right to to, to write about um, what it was like there um, uh, during that kind of early part of the of the troubles. Um, but they're all uh, very positive and, um, and they forgive me for uh, my southern accent and stuff. So I really like reading there. It's the most extraordinary book about what it was like in the 1970s in the North. And I think it's absolutely pitch perfect. But it is interesting that you remembered it so well, having left at the age of 12 and not having gone back very often until you were an adult, did you? No, we didn't go back often. My parents, um, I think really by the time we left in 1979, um, various things had happened in, I suppose, in my kind of early childhood. My grandparents had... uh, a bar in Hollywood, County Down, and uh, there were, after two bomb attacks, it was sold, and um, a, a lot of my family moved south in 1975. Um, um, then some other things happened after that. You know, my my father found himself um, the only Catholic in a very large, um, pretty large workforce of about 150 people in East Belfast, and that was very difficult. And um, uh, so by the time we left, they were really feeling pretty negative about the place, and we really only went back for funerals and weddings and things like that, mostly funerals. Um, so then when I, I, I didn't start to write until I was 47 and um, and then very quickly figured that I didn't want to do anything else. So the following year, um, I enrolled in a creative writing MA in Queen's University in Belfast. And um, and straight after that, I, I, um, I, I started to do a PhD. So that's probably, I mean, the two or three days a week that I spent going to Queen's for, for those years um, and maybe the fact that I, when I was there I kind of made relationships with people I was just in the habit of going back it's um, it's the really from 1979 until like maybe I guess how many years later 30 years later that was like the, the longest time that I'd, I'd actually 
spent in Queens. You haven't moved back there now, have you? No, my husband wouldn't dream of moving back. And my children definitely wouldn't. They're like, we live in Sligo. My kids are like Sligo people, so they wouldn't have it at all. Yeah. Let's get to some of your, and I'm going to recommend again, because I know that Transpass, this is now out in paperback, and I recommend anyone to read it. It is absolutely terrific novel, a fantastic story, but also brilliant in explaining what the North was like during the 1970s. Now, let's get to your choices. And the first thing we ask every guest to do is to nominate the first single that they ever remember or admit to buying. What's your choice? Okay, so um, this is actually the first single I ever bought with 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 money that I earned. Um, I think that there might have been um, before that, uh, but I'm not sure who bought it. But I know that a single of uh, uh, Lindsay DePaul and Mike Moran, as he called himself, singing Rock Bottom. I think it was a British Eurovision entry in about 1974, ended up in the house, but we're all denying responsibility for actually handing over money for it. Um, so yeah, um, and your choice is very different to a Eurovision. Entry. Yeah, so the, so the first single I ever bought with my own money was a copy of the Clash "London Calling," um, which I paid for with um, money that I earned from babysitting my cousins. It wasn't long after we left the north and um, and ended up living in Nice. So. It was I was twelve, which is also interesting because um, I don't know who thought that it was all right to leave twelve year olds babysitting, but that was probably a thing then. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I bought. Let's hear a little bit of it. time we played The Clash in only a matter of weeks. Were you a punk at that stage? No, I was 12 and um, I don't know, I think I just heard the opening bars of it on the radio or something and, and, and really loved it and I don't think I particularly knew what I, what I was buying and um, and also I think that um, that maybe in, I was the eldest child and probably I was reared by people who would have found the stuff like punk horrifying so I didn't have anybody older in the family who was like introducing me to sort of cool stuff at all um, so no I wasn't a punk um, I think maybe for a few months then I listened to what, did, what other did, I think I bought uh, maybe I bought a, a pretender single not long after that and um, which I still think is fine but then things got like very bad a year or two later when I was buying stuff by like Haircut singles by Haircut 100 and things and not the worst. Well, it's not the worst. To. It could be worse, yeah. But I mean, it's not. It's not as cool as buying that. Yeah. <laughs> You've given us two favorite albums. Start with the Miseducation of Lauren Hill from nineteen ninety eight. Why are you nominating it? Um, I think that I mean there are probably reasons of kind of personal nostalgia or something for that. Um, so I maybe came to that a year, to, a year or so afterwards. Really, I think I got my hands on a copy. Was it re- released in eighty ninety nine ninety eight? Yeah. So maybe it was. 
1999 um, when I was expecting my um, my first uh, child uh, who ended up being a boy but um, I played that for some reason I don't know why but I played that um, morning, noon and night when I was pregnant and then uh, we played it a lot um, when um, I probably played it a lot when my children were small um, I, I think it was maybe I just found there's something kind of extraordinary about um, the fact that uh, at times it's almost like um not even gospel, but almost like kind of religious music. Um, but the combination of maybe reggae and, and, and hip hop and, and soul. Um, and also the fact that she wrote those songs too. I just thought it was incredible. Let's hear from the miseducation of Lauren Hill, Lost Ones. Funny how money changes situation. Miscommunication lead to complication. My emancipation don't put your equation. I was on the humble, you on every station. Someone play young Lauren like she done. But remember not to game the one of the sun. Everything you did has already been done. I know all the tricks from bricks to kingstown. My ting done, major king done, one wrong. Now understand El Boogie, now violent. But different things test me, run to me, can take a threat to me, no do you still listen to it? Oh, I still listen to it. And in fact, my daughter uh, was getting ready to go out the other night with a couple of her mates and um, and um, the, the album was playing out of her room. So, yeah. I still listen to it. Now, the other album is not one I'm familiar with. Lucinda Williams' Happy Woman's Blues. Um, so, Lucinda Williams, who probably lots of people know, she's a, a country singer from uh, the American South. And um, she um, began with an album of, um, of um, I guess, her versions or covers of, um, of some sort of traditional American songs, like uh, The Great Speckled Bird and stuff like that. And I didn't hear that. And in fact, I, I heard this... This album, uh, Happy Woman's Blues, um, I think it was 1980, was it? Um, recorded in 1980, I think. I know uh, nothing of it. Okay, that's all right. So it was recorded in 1980, but I didn't get to hear it until maybe the early 90s when a friend introduced me to uh, Lucinda Williams. And um, there's something very raw and almost off, um, almost off key about her singing voice. And um, I don't know, she sings about, I mean probably about people wanting to have better lives, mostly women wanting to have better lives but getting badly let down by fellas they meet in bars and um, and just about um, maybe about the landscape and the suffocation in some ways of, of the South and um, I, I just uh, think she's amazing. So actually, um, not the book that I'm working on at the moment but the one after this I kind of want it to be like a Lucinda Williams song. Okay, we yeah. don't have any track from there. That's but anyway, right. Favourite band, you have... You've pulled together a Miles Davis ensemble. Well, the reason for that, okay, so um, I have to confess that um, I, I, streaming like Spotify and stuff suits me very well because I was never really much of an album sort of a person, um, which probably a lot of people find disgraceful. So um, it kind of suits me to like pull things and stick them on playlists and everything. But um, the one album that I do know about, okay, so um, it's maybe not even necessarily that it's my favourite band, but um, I, I, I would love people to argue that... Um, that it isn't one of the best bands that was ever pulled together. It was the band that Miles Davis um, pulled together for um, for a kind of blue. 
Okay, and let's hear with this John Coltrane, Cannonball, Alderley, White and Kelly, and Paul Chambers. So this and is Bill a, Evans, especially Bill Evans. We have a kind of thing about Bill Evans in our house. So. Okay, <laughs> and this is Freddie Freeloader. Davis, Freddie Freeloader from Kind of Blue. Now, best gig you were ever at, Louise Kennedy. What are you nominating for us? Um, there were a couple. Um, so, um, I don't know what date, what year it was, which is very bad. It was, um, it was a gig that Alva Costello and the attractions did in uh, the Olympia. Maybe it was an, on a Friday night before they were uh, at Fela. So it was sometime in the early 90s. And um, maybe it was like a last minute thing or something. Um, but um, I had really loved uh, Elvis Costello and the attractions when I when I was um, when I was younger, and um, yeah, it was just a, a completely um, a, a sort of surprisingly uh, kind of joyously incredible gig. It was amazing. Well, we have from 1974 Brutal Youth US tour. This is Elvis Costello and the attractions playing the beat. Following the attractions at the Olympia, which I think Anne Tiernan recently was nominating the Olympia. Can't remember what gig it was, but she just loved mm-hmm. being there. What a fantastic mm. venue for being at a gig. And I have to say, another gig that I remember was um, was when um, Echo and the Bunny Men played All of Ocean Rain in the Olympia in 2011. And I think at some point I must have developed vertigo because we ended up like right up at the top. And every time I stood up, I thought it was going to fall over. So I don't know, maybe it's for like younger people to be up there. Nothing to do with drink? Um, there might have been a bit of that, but it, uh, I was able to tolerate it when I was younger. <laughs> OK, we're going to take a break. Louise Kennedy is with us, the author of Trespasses uh, is with us today for the Culture Club and we're going to get to our favourite books and plays and movies and television when we come back after this break. Welcome back. So it's Louise Kennedy who's with us for the Culture Club today. So we've been hearing all of her musical choices but let's move on and uh, let's start with movies and you've given us a couple of movies. 
Uh, yeah, so um, I guess my favourite uh, movie for adults is uh, On the Waterfront. Um, I must have seen it on TV or something because it was made in the 50s. I must have seen it on TV at some point uh, in my teens. And um, I think I loved how beautiful it looked. I also loved... Um, uh, the character that um, uh, Marlon uh, Brando uh, played as well and just the tragedy of him not really being able to escape his I mean you think he's going to get out but but ultimately he can't and it's just those terrible kind of uh, loyalties um, that kept him there Um I, I do recall though um, uh, later on I mean I think more recently um, I, I saw it and then thought something um, that maybe Carl Mulden and Eve Marie Sant were, play, were kind of performing those characters were kind of performing the same function except that maybe she looked a lot better or something I don't know um, they both acted as his conscience but um, I, I still think it's a really beautiful film Let's have a clip from it in which Terry played by Marlon Brando speaks with Charlie played by Rod Steger about his lost days of promise as a boxer How much you weigh, Slip? And you weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. Remember that night in the garden, he came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, child. Marlon Brando with one of the classic oh, lines there, I could have been a contender. You also have School of Rock down. Okay, I do have School of Rock down and I have um, absolutely uh, no shame about that. So when my children were very small, we probably, um, so this is in the early 2000s, um, we did Toy Story and that was fine. And then things started to get really crap with things like Shark Tale that I hated. <laughs> and then School of Rock came out and it was the first film that wasn't animated that all four of us watched and enjoyed. And um, uh, I think it might be on Netflix again because I've seen my kids are watching it again, they, um, even though they're like 20 and, and, and 23. And uh, we all know pretty much line of it off by heart. And there's just some scenes in there that I are so funny. I can't cope with uh, like uh Joan Cusack um, playing the, um, the the very sort of prissy headmistress and when he gets her drunk and she, she does her Stevie Nicks thing and stuff. It's just such crack. That's a good choice. Yeah. Give us a favourite play. Uh, favourite play? So, um, okay, I probably somebody's going to come after me and kill me for this, but I um, sometimes struggle uh, with suspending my disbelief in the theatre. So um, I don't, 
it wasn't really that difficult to narrow down this list. But uh, what I always loved um, was the field day productions um, that went on tour in the 80s. And I think maybe one of them especially uh, resonated with me. And it was a production of um, Stuart Parker's play uh, Pentecost that was on, um, it was on in the 80s. And that was set during the Ulster Workers' Council strike, which um, was a time that I remember uh, very well as a, as, a, as a child in the North. And um, um, I think because Parker, uh, you know, was a, a, you know, came from Protestant um, East Belfast um, and had been really influenced by Sam Thompson's play um, about uh, sectarianism in the in the shipyards. Apparently, that was like his moment where he thought he might like to to be a playwright. Um, it probably influenced me a lot. And uh, also, I think it didn't do any harm that um, in the production that I saw in the lyric in Belfast. Um, Stephen Ray was uh, was playing um, one of the parts, and Eileen Reed, who was uh, brilliant, and ended up in um, in um, did she end up in Bread or something playing Lilo Lil? Wasn't that it? I think anyway, she was like a, a, an actress from Belfast, and she was brilliant. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go to books and authors because you've given us quite a list. And I notice all female authors as well. Nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, I see. I didn't do that on purpose, but um, no, you gave the honest answer. Yeah. And you also went through at various stages of your life. Um, yeah, but I think maybe that was. I think that I couldn't. I wouldn't have known what to do with reading Tony Morrison at twenty-one. So I do mention that. Um, so uh, when I was um, a child, my mother kept me very well supplied with books, and then I hit like twelve or thirteen, and. Um, I think I had like I was reading like Agatha Christie or something, and then um, that sort of thing. And then um, I got a copy of um, a book on a school trip to the Isle of Man called "Flowers in the Attic," which is this very lurid uh, tale of a brother and sister who get locked up in the roof space by their mother and um, and fall in love. So it was absolute smut. And um, um, and uh, who wrote that? Uh, Virginia Andrews. It was like a huge seller, and um, I think there were sequels and everything. Um, and then, um, I mean, I could very easily have gone on reading stuff like that, except that I had a neighbour who lent me a copy of a book. I didn't even know what it was um, that she'd given me, and um, it was a copy of the White Album, um, a collection of essays by Joan Didion. So I read that when I was probably about fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, and. Um, at that time, I was probably uh, a fairly, um, uh, I don't know, not very biddable and lonely um, adolescent. And I just think the world seemed to kind of open up or something from the, the, the wee bedroom that I was in. Uh, I think there's especially there's one essay in there and it's where um, uh, Didion talks about um, being sent to buy a dress for Linda Kasabian, who was like... Um, uh, Manson family member turned state witness to wear at at, at the at Charles Manson's trial. Um but even just that, I, could, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And then you've also mentioned the likes of Edna O'Brien, Anne Enright and Devlin. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe... I'm sorry, I, would it be fair to say you did a lot of reading before you actually decided to start writing yourself? Oh yeah, and I didn't even decide to start writing. I just accidentally ended up in a writing group when I was 47. Um, yeah, I read a lot. I read, um, I read um, probably about three books a week. Um, I just read everything I could get my hands on. And maybe, I mean, I think that... If I had any idea what I was doing, it was from reading. Because I think as a as a reader, um, you don't just take in a story; you take in structure and and form or something as well. I think there's other stuff that you take in without knowing that that it's going in. Okay, and character yeah. as well. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, we have a little bit of Edna O'Brien 
This is when she's narrating her book, The Country Girls. Mm-hmm. I clicked the latch tight and came out to find Baba waiting. Bloody clown, what did you fall over? She was sitting on an empty porter barrel outside the door, swinging her legs. Your dress will get all pink paint from that barrel, I said. It's a pink dress, you idiot. I'm going home with you. I might feck a few rings. She coveted Mamma's rings and was always fitting them on when she came upstairs in our house. No, you're not, I said firmly, but my voice was shaky. Yes, I am. I'm going over to get a bunch of flowers. Mummy sent over word at lunchtime to ask your mother, could I? Mummy's having tea with the Archbishop tomorrow, so we want bluebells for the table. Who's the Archbishop? I asked. We only had a bishop in our diocese. Who's the Archbishop? Are you a bloody Protestant or what? She asked. I was walking very quickly. I hoped she might get tired of me and go into the paper shop for a free read of adventure books. The woman in the paper shop was half blind and Baba stole a lot of books from there. I was breathing so nervously that the wings of my nose got wide. My nose is getting wider. Will it ever go back again to normal? I asked. Your nose, she said, is always wide. You've a nose like a bloody petrol pump. You were smiling and wincing as you listened to that. Um, I just think, I mean, that that book was um, um, Edna O'Brien's first book and she wrote it apparently in about five or six weeks and um, you, just from the, you can just tell she just had it from the start. I mean, the idea, have, have you ever heard that expression, the wings of somebody's nose? Um, um, and those, um, you know, are you a bloody Protestant? You know, those sorts of observations. I, um, yeah, I, I, I just think she's extraordinary, really extraordinary. Um, and and even the fact that um, in spite of uh, how dreadfully she was um, treated um, uh, in her own country, and then um, I mean, I just guess, to explain to yeah. people for that who aren't familiar with it, uh, how dreadfully she was treated. Well, um, I mean, she uh, uh, she had an apology from the president of Ireland for how she was treated. Um, her books were burned. Um, she was banned. I think she had five books banned by the Irish censor. And um, uh, well, I why first, why um, this is the bit that's baffling. So when I first uh, came across the country girls it was a copy in the school library but it didn't have like a ticket in it so I think it was just a copy that found its way in there I don't think it was actually part of the library stock and um, I flicked through it you know there's that thing that you do I don't know maybe I, I don't I don't think I was the only teenager who did this but you know if you held a book open it would normally open at a page that was well thumbed and that would very often be the dirty bit this is the theory that we all came up with anyway and um, but there was actually nothing in there there, there was nothing there was no sex in it um, but I think that she'd done something really subversive which was to um, to show that Irish Catholic women had inner lives or something and that was like really um, dangerous I think that they could see that that was very dangerous I mean maybe some of her, her books later like maybe four or five books later um, they were maybe a little bit more sexually explicit by that stage it was like the late 60s and stuff but um, um, yeah and and even um, you know her last book I hope I'm going to say her most recent book I'm going to say I hope it wasn't her last book um um, which was about, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's called Girl and um, it's written from the point of view of, of one child, I suppose, who um, who uh, was kidnapped by um, Boko Haram in uh, Nigeria. And O'Brien actually went to Nigeria with her underwear stuffed with cash with which to bribe officials so that she could research the book properly. Um, and she was about 86. I just think she's extraordinary. OK, what sort of television influenced you as a child? 
Um, so I think that I mean there was all the stuff like kind of multicoloured swap shop and everything, but I sort of hated that. Um, I I, uh, the, I guess this program is very much tied up with my favourite book uh, when I was a child, and it was it's called Carrie's War, and um, it was based on a book by Nina Borden, and it was about a girl called Carrie Willow who uh, was a evacuee from uh, London in World War. Um, two with her little brother and they end up going to live in this Welsh village and she's a completely overactive imagination and imagines that, you know, the adults around them were all doing terrible things but obviously it turns out that she was wrong. But I think the framing of it maybe got in on me a bit because um, it opens with uh, Carrie um, as a widow going with her grown-up children to, to back to the place where she'd been as a child and then ends there as well and I'd probably do something a bit like that in, in Trespasses. And you're a Coronation Street fan? Oh my God, I was like completely rare on Coronation Street. I adored it. So um, yeah, I can remember, I, I, I have to say, I, it has kind of lost me lately. So this would have been something that I really loved when I was growing up. Um, uh, I remember when um, Deirdre tried to leave Ken with Mike Baldwin. And um, and then, you know, much later on, some of the completely hilarious stuff. I think um, uh, Paul Abbott, who wrote Shameless, might have written some of these episodes with them, um, you know, Reg and Maureen and the waterbed and stuff like that. I, anyway, I just thought it was, um, yeah, just a completely delightful half hour a few times a week. And you're the second person in weeks who's nominated Happy Valley as their best oh current my God. adult show. Yeah. Let's just hear a clip where Catherine, played by Sarah Lancashire, is called into the principal office as her grandson is accused of vandalising a car. Do you know when the damage occurred? Uh, well, uh, between when I parked the car there this morning and when it was brought to my attention by another member of staff at dinner time. And who has access to that area during the day? Uh, well, everyone, but... Any CCTV? Uh, not covering that area, no. So what's led you to believe it was Ryan? Only that he and I had an altercation yesterday. And I'm not accusing him. I thought you were. I'm sorry, I thought that's why I was here. Well, I thought, um, I'm sorry, Mr Hepworth, I, I thought you were. Well, someone's done it. Right, well, if you want me to write a police report, I can... Uh, no, I, uh, I don't think we need to go down that route, do we, Mr Hepworth? Well, actually, I can't, because if you are accusing Ryan, another officer needs to deal with it. No, I just asked you in as his grandmother, really, not as a... Uh... Although, to be absolutely honest with you, you'll need more evidence than the fact that you've had an altercation with him, and even them are not really talking about criminal damage, are we? If the tyres had been slashed and it was indelible marker pen, then, yeah, we would be, but they weren't, so it isn't. And can I ask you, Mr Epworth, are you quite certain in your own mind that you haven't made an assumption it was Ryan precisely because you did have this altercation with him yesterday? Sarah Lancashire, once Raquel on yes, Coronation Street. Yeah. What is it about Happy Valley that you like so much? Um, I mean, I think that... Um Sally Wainwright, who wrote it. Um, so it's set in the place that she comes from, which is this, um, um, you know, village in a, in a valley in, in uh, Yorkshire. And um, I think that the dialogue is incredible. But I also think that um, the, 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 I suppose the two characters who are pitched against each other are um, Sarah Lancashire, um, you know, her, her character, Catherine, the, the, the policewoman, who is, um, who is um, for three series, I guess, um, you know, pitched against uh, the, the local psychopath, uh, uh, Tommy Lee Royce, who has played just absolutely uh, uh, brilliantly um, as well. And um, 
I think there's a kind of the intricacy of the other relationships in her life as well that um, she is, uh, Catherine is bringing up uh, Ryan, the, the, the nephew who was just mentioned in 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 the clip and trying to protect him um, really from the fact that his father is actually Tommy Lee Royce. Um, and, um, you know, the people that she has helping to bring him up, is her, her, you know, her, there's her sister who's a recovering heroin addict and um, and then her completely annoying boyfriend who's um, who's a, a, a really a dry drunk. Um, and um, yeah, just all of those uh, those interactions as, as well. I just think brilliant writing. Okay, we're nearly finished. So we ask each guest to give us what we might call a cultural buried treasure, something off the grid. And you've gone for a Sligo-based artist, Bettine Sets. Is that how I put it? Yeah, so it? it's Bettina Sites. Okay. Um, so um, Trespasses opens with um, Kushler, the main character, visiting the Ulster Museum in 2015, um, 2014. And... Um, there was a, an exhibition called The Art of the Troubles um, which was on in the Ulster Museum in kind of 2014, 2015 and um, I w- went in and sort of caught the, the tail end of it when I was a student in, in Queens and it got me thinking about how maybe visual art um, could could be used to express things that are maybe unsayable in a place that's where language is very problematic. I mean, everything, even what to call the North is problematic. What to call the Good Friday Agreement is problematic as well, or, or you know, that, that agreement. Some people said a Belfast Agreement. The Belfast Agreement, agreement exactly. And um, so I think that maybe um, I came away from there um, and, you know, I, I came away from that exhibition um, I, maybe with, with that going on subconsciously and um, Fairly soon afterwards, these um, sculptures began appearing in, in, in locations in Sligo Town. And um, they look, they, she calls them Bettina uh, Seitz, who's a German, um, which is a Sligo-based uh, artist. Um, she, she makes these uh, very gauzy looking, kind of almost ethereal uh, figures um, um, where she drapes cloth over over frames. So you expect that if you touch them, you'd nearly be able to put your hand through them. But yet they are rock hard and very cold. And um, I think that kind of got in on me. And um, and maybe I imagined, I think that I I, I, I kind of created um, a ghost of, of a victim of the, of the troubles and, um, and imagined a, a life for him. So that's maybe where trespasses came from. Well, that's all we have time for. Trespasses is now out in paperback, the most highly recommended book we could suggest. And Louise is going to be appearing at the Courts International Festival in Galway with Anne Enright in conversation with Glenn Patterson on the 23rd of April and booking from courts.ie. Louise Kennedy, thank you so much for with us. That's it for today's programme. Big thank you to my entire production team. We're back tomorrow at half past four. Until then, for me, Matt Cooper, have a very good evening. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.